Hello, everyone. This is Noah and John. We are from Urban Digs. We are talking Manhattan. And Johnny, we got uh, we got something's in the air today, Johnny. We got spring in the air. It's a little something special. It's not as much as a podcast as it is sort of like a mini roundtable. And I'm really looking forward yeah. to it. Yeah, it's not a podcast. It's not a webinar. It's something in the middle. It's going to be on new developments. Um, it's going to be an interesting take. We've got some really cool people here. John, why don't you introduce yeah, of course. So let's start. We have Kale Goodman, who is the co-founder and CEO of MarketProof, which is a data site dedicated to the new development space, and it's great. Uh, and we also have uh, Jared Randolph and Sean McGinley, who are the partners at, uh, sorry, the principals at Vestry Partners, which is a, a real estate investment fund that looks at bulk condo acquisition deals. So it's uh, we, we've got the gamut of experience here. It's going to be good stuff. Yeah, yeah. We got this is going to be a combination of interesting, unique, rare to find data through Kale, as well as interesting and unique, rare to find in the street experiences you got with Jared and Sean. So this is going to go to some places. Um, it's going to go to some corners. It might get a little dark. We'll see. We'll see what happens. You got to listen. But listen, let's start high <laughs> level. Yeah, Kale. I'm going to start with you, Kale. What is going on high level in Manhattan and Brooklyn, if you know what's going on? But Manhattan um, sure. right now. So, uh, you know, the Manhattan and Brooklyn markets are really very different from each other right now. Um, in Manhattan, you have uh, a lot of supply uh, with demand uh, picking up. Um, and in Brooklyn, you have kind of less supply, but demand really skyrocketing. Um, so kind of trends that had started pre-COVID uh, are continuing uh, with really, you know, the separation of the two markets, um, both in terms of the price points, uh, the kind of uh, projects that are in the market and how they're doing, how, how people are thinking about them and reacting to them. Um, right now in Manhattan, you have a few projects that are doing really well, um, but you have a whole bunch of projects that I'm sure would like to be doing a lot better. Um, in Brooklyn, uh, you have a few projects doing really well, and then you have many projects that are doing pretty good. So, uh, you know, we can dig into that a little more on how kind of we got to where we are, but that, that's kind of the high line of, you know, what's, what's taking place. Uh, Jared, talking to you right there, same question. What are you seeing out there? There is a lot of activity happening right now in new construction buildings uh, in Brooklyn, in Manhattan, in Long Island City. And there's a reason for that. Um, and it's a, it's a structural reason for how these buildings are run and who is in control of the operations now. And it may be the developer, but it could be the LP partner or it could be the debt partner who's pushing to move product. So people are starting to realize, and when I say people, it's those who are in the capital stack of these developments that they have to start to negotiate and bring down pricing to move product. They have no other choice. If they don't sell it, they're gonna lose their shirts. And this is all the way down to the bank level now. So you're seeing activity, a pickup, and you're gonna see even more activity coming in the spring, as well as I think through the summer, through the end of the year. So, so if there is activity, right? Is it fair to assume that these guys are coming down and negotiating? I mean, the, the thing that you're asking for is happening. It's just happening before our eyes or, is it still not happening to the level that you think it needs to happen to purge this, this oversupply problem? 
Um, it depends on where the developer is in the sales process. So a building that entered the market within the last 18 to 12 months is not under the pressure to sell like a building that's been on the market for three to five years. Because the ones that were introduced into the market in the last 12 to 18 months have a much longer leeway on their capital. It's their capital is longer. So when you go into new development, you have a projected absorption or sellout rate. And that's typically, you know, I don't think we're in the days anymore of the post 9-11, early 2000s, where we were selling off of plan and before a building was completed and TCO'd, it was sold out. We're now right. in the days where most developers are used to having a two, three, four year sellout strategy. So if you're 18 months out of the ground, you really still have another year and a half to two years in your sales strategy. However, if you haven't met your first hurdles in the sales process for six months, 12 months, 18 months, your lender and your LP, if you're in the sponsor shoes, is going to start pushing you to get deals done. And there's obviously a minimum release price that they work off of, but there's ways of getting to, to and above what that minimum release price is and build in incentives for yourselves as a buyer where you can get a really good deal. And that's, you know, and I'll, I'll kind of sum it up with, people are getting great deals in New York City right now that we haven't seen in years. And it's yeah. going to start to bring down that level of inventory. For new development, new development. In, in particular for new development, yes. Right, Interesting. now you know these things, Jared. You know this stuff that people don't know. Like, I mean, how many of the whole total, like how many, what percentage would you guess of these builders are in that haven't gotten the first hurdle? You know what I'm saying? Like how many are troubled? You know what I'm saying? If you can give us an idea. So Kale, co correct me if I'm wrong, but my research and data has shown that the the collective collective inventory that's still left to be sold is roughly around 10,000 units. That's just on the island of Manhattan. Manhattan? Go ahead. Yeah, it is. Um, so, and just to kind of build on what Jared was saying about price, uh, you know, if we look from kind of listing price to sold price and look at the average discount for, for new development, we're only talking about sponsor sales here. Right. We're not talking about resales, just sales from the sponsor. Pre-COVID pre uh, in Manhattan, uh, average discount price was hovering in kind of six to 7% range. Right, so what their unit was listed at, what it sold at. That is from original ask or last ask? From the last asking price, from the listing price. Okay. So, and that remember, that excludes any other concessions that are not recorded, right. Right? right? So now where we're at in the most recent quarter is we're approaching 12%, and that's overall, right? So it's an aggregate price. At the high end, the discounts could be, could be much greater, 15, 20, right. some cases, 25% and, and some real outliers even more. Um, at the lower price points, it's gotta be much less because that's really where the buyers are right now. But when you bring it all together, we're hovering around 12% right now. And that's last ask, that's not even original ask. That's, no, that's you're not taking into account the full, the full. I mean, I guess the that's the negotiation. That's the negotiation, yeah, that's for, not the reduction. From the, from the offering plan price, you, right. it would be even a little more. Right, let's this, get Sean. Yeah, let's see what Sean has to say. Yeah, so the the other thing that has not been covered yet is, you know, in general in Manhattan in particular, um, 
buyers what buyers are willing to pay is still there's still a big gap between that and what uh, sponsors are asking. The difference between now and maybe six or eight months ago is sponsors are finally starting to get creative with the other incentives that they're willing to offer to get you to a price that you're comfortable paying. So even though they still want to protect the pricing integrity of the, the final close price, they're starting to offer common charge credits or they'll pay your mansion tax or city and state transfer tax. And that's something that they were not doing, uh, except in very rare cases up until the last few months, because they are seeing buyers uh, enter the market now that people are kind of figuring out what they're doing next um, mm-hmm. in, a, in a future, near future post-COVID world. So buyers are out there and sponsors are, are finding ways to finally actually capture them and, and get deals closed. Sean brought up a very good point of the asking price that the sponsor has listed versus what the buyers are willing to pay. I'm going to, I'm going to say something which I hope will help the community of brokers listening. Sponsors don't want to bring down their pricing, but they're willing to deal. And what you need to do is get your clients to go in and make offers that aren't necessarily revolved around price. And we can go into to the dynamics of this a little bit later in the call because I know we want to focus on that. But it's about the optics of that ultimate price. There's other ways of getting there. And we have to get out of that conversation of it just being that dollar per square foot. In fact, you as a buyer going into a building that was selling at $2,000 a square foot, you absolutely do not want to buy on paper or recorded in Acris at $1,300 or $1,400 a square foot. There's other ways to get to a lower price per square foot. Thirteen dollars or $1,400 might be worth it. But yeah, but, yeah. but the, the, the point is, is you want your price per square foot recorded higher because it just protects the price integrity of the building when you go to trade it in the future when you're an end user and you're not an investor. But we have to get away from just focusing on the price per square foot. There's deals to be made, but there's other ways to do that. Well, let's, can we, let's just, I want to, this is great, but I think deals are sort of like, you know, the, the very end of the pipeline. I'd like to start sort of at the top of this, this big funnel, which the problem is oversupply. And if we could just start talking about supply in general, I mean, Kale, you've got some interesting stats on that. I'd love to hear, you know, what your thoughts are on the, the new dev supply situation. Yeah. So, you know, the question is like, how did we get to having so much oversupply? And, you know, a couple of things happened sequentially over a couple of years. Um, you know, why it takes a long time to build a building. Um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of regulation. You got to deal with DOB, et cetera, et cetera. So it takes time. And, you know, kind of coming out of the Bloomberg years, um, you know, people were focused on competing, Manhattan competing on the global stage against, you know, the other you know, tier one global cities. And so buildings that were planned during that time period didn't come online until after the president presidential election. So, you know, at that point, the, um, you know, the international buyers started looking elsewhere. Um, and then we had two domestic things take place. One was the, uh, the salt uh, deduction cap, which came out of Washington. Uh, but then also you had the mansion tax that Sean just mentioned, which came out of Albany. Uh, which had a really negative effect on, on the high-end condo. Um, and then after that, then we had COVID. So you really had a one, two, three uh, punch that sequentially uh, affected the market. Um, and, 
a lot of buildings have been planned. Um, the market shut down, um, taste changed post-COVID. And what we're left with at the end of that is more than 15,000 unsold condos in New York City, the bulk of which are in Manhattan and the bulk of which are at price points where local buyers are really not, not that interested. Um, when you add it all together, there's you know more than $45 billion at offering plan asking price of unsold inventory with 20 of it being at price points that are probably too high. You know, Kale, to talk about what you just- I had some long speech, I apologize. To talk about what you just outlined in terms of <laughs> the issues which have compounded to create the market we're in today, there is a fundamental issue which launched all the problems and Sam's taking all of, all of those away from the taxation and policy to COVID uh, to foreign buyers exiting because of the value of the dollar. And it started in 2015 and it's simple supply and demand. In 2015, there were roughly 14,000 new construction condo units approved and permitted to be built and 9,000 were financed. That means in 2015, it takes basically about four years for them to get out of the ground. We were gonna have 9,000 units on the market. Now here's the problem. Historically in new development, up until COVID, so let's say till the end of 2019, for the last 11 years, we've averaged roughly 2,000 units, give or take 100 units annually of contracts signed on the island of Manhattan. That meant whether we had 3,000 units available to sell or we had 7,000 units available to sell, that line remained in terms of demand relatively stagnant. Now, there's some variations on how things changed in terms of price per square foot went up, absolute costs went up, but it doesn't matter. 2,000 units were sold. Herein lies the problem. If you look historically at the amount of demand and execution of signed contracts, it's not closed units in new development, it's signed contracts. That meant we were going to get to the point if we continued on the trajectory of only selling 2,000 units or signing contracts on 2,000 units a year, that we, no matter what, would have fundamentally, fundamentally been at a point of oversupply. And we're there now. So all of the other issues compounded on top of that have now created a marketplace where it is absolutely in the buyer's favor. Most of the developers, I'd say probably two thirds of the developers have been so diluted or lost their equity in their projects that the LPs and the banks are now controlling the movement of the product and they wanna get that off their shelves. So Noah, you had asked me the question a few minutes ago of how many developers do you think are in the position? Let's say there are roughly 10,000 units on the island of Manhattan that need to be sold. If we look at when most of them broke ground, which in 2016, about 4,500 of them broke ground, most of those are not sold out. I'd say about two thirds of the product because what was built between 2016 and 17 and a little bit of 18 is not sold out right now. That's gonna account for about two thirds of that 10,000 units. Yeah. Now, I'm going to wrap and stop here because I know I'm, 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 I'm going on. No, go. No. Equilibrium for new development is roughly 4,500 to 4,700 units that are available for sale, whether it's on the market or shadow inventory. So we do not need to sell all 10,000 units. We need to sell about half of that product, and it's going to start to get back to equilibrium. Equilibrium for new development is not resale. Yeah. But 24 to 30 months of supply, and that's it. That's right. Here's, here's, okay. Let me give you an, an alternate view. Okay. We're at now, now, 
right? Like, so if you look at the starting point of where we are right now and just look ahead, right? Here's what I see. Okay. I see, I see peak supply. And if, you know, if it goes up a little more, I don't care. We're at or near peak supply. Okay. I see rising costs of materials costs. I see a deflationary environment where builders are not rushing to build and, and apply for permits. Okay. So when I look down again, where now, when I look ahead, there's a lot of dynamics that are changing that were in play five years ago. Totally different playbook. The product that's going to be built is going to be completely different. Absolutely. Then the product that was built in 2015, looking ahead, 2014, looking ahead. That's the problem. So now the, 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 the way that this sector is changing before our eyes right now, which is incredible to see. And there are deals. I agree with that, that there are deals. I happen to think that this is the peak of it. I really do. In terms of buyer leverage, I, the peak of it probably was five, six months ago. I think we're off the peak because the, 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 the fear window, the discount window is removed. Outside of that, everything else is the same. Maybe it's recovered a little bit. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, resales. I, I will, I will, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to completely disagree with you. I think that mentality puts the market in a very unhealthy position. It does not give buyers and real estate brokers the leverage. That type of commentary doesn't give them the leverage that they need to negotiate with these developers. At the end of the day, I'm all about getting deals done. And we can't let these developers think that the market is getting better. It is not. The market is still bad. And now is the time. And it's going to be probably this year bleeding into the beginning of next year where it will be the time. But it wasn't six months ago. The, mar the market is bad. The market's going to do what the market wants to do regardless of what any, any of us say. It doesn't matter what any of us say. The market's going to do what it wants to do. Those developers are going to either do those deals or not do those deals regardless of what you, I, Kale, or John says here right now. It doesn't matter, right? But you already said earlier on that we are seeing activity. So I'm trying to find, are the bids coming up or the developers coming down? And I would argue that the developers are starting to come down. And that's what's starting to, maybe a little bit of both. Maybe the bids are coming up, developers are coming down. Now, very important, I want to clarify. We are off our lows. We are off in the new development sector. We're still down. No, in order in order to have a signed contract, the, the bid and the ask have to meet. I know that, but 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 six months ago, that bid and ask was like this. Kale. Way too wide. Today, today maybe it's Coming like together. So so I'm trying to figure out are the bids coming up a little bit and the and the developers are coming down more um, in in relation to that and which I think is what's happening. What 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 Jared is saying I think is in the process of happening and the insolvency part of this whole crisis has not. This is this is going to happen. Let me see if I can I can bring together what, what both of you are saying because the market is made up of many separate buildings. In the bulk of the deals are getting done in successful buildings. And those are the buildings that have the right mix of stuff, the right floor plans, the right amenities, the right design. Those buildings are right now still able to achieve a higher price point. But to Jared's point, you have a large bulk of other projects that aren't in that group. And those are the buildings that Jared is talking about, I believe. Yeah. And they'll ultimately get there. It's yeah, just they're going to get there. Yeah. Every, listen, everything sells at a price. That's yeah. right. Yeah. The, the flurry of activity that we're seeing in new development is not solving the fundamental problem. The fundamental problems are there's too much inventory. The developers can't are, are not securing new loans. They're not able to get new equity on these, these properties. They're doing workouts with their existing lenders to figure out resale programs. So the, the real estate brokers and the, the buyers are right now still in the driver's seat. 
And in the product that is struggling right now, which is probably two thirds of the market, no matter what is gonna to continue to struggle. You could have a hundred units, 50 of them are sold. You start to have a flurry of activity because you're negotiating. Guess what? If that building has been on the market for four years, that developer, it, it's the, the project is shot. They need to get rid of it. So they're not gonna sell 30 units and all of a sudden the last 20 units, it's gonna shoot back up 25% in value. They need to clear the books now so they can, listen, they're developers. This happens, boom and bust. It's just part of the cycle. It's not that big of a deal that everybody in the news wants to make it. Oh my God, New York's falling apart. New York is not falling apart. There is too much equity in the brick and mortar. The average uh, homeowner of an individual property has roughly 65%, um, 35% equity in their property. And the average owner of a commercial property, which there's 175,000 of them in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan that are zoned commercial. They've owned their property for an average of 41 years. There is so much equity in the brick and mortar. New York isn't going anywhere. So what we need to do is come up with a solution to get these units off of the shelf for the developers, let the buyers get a great deal, get people back into New York and keep moving forward. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Amen. I mean, Look, right now in Manhattan, there's nearly 200 condo projects that are less than 50% sold. That's a lot. Um, and if you take less than 15% sold, it's nearly 100. And you have 250 more projects coming. Right. So, so yeah, so this deflationary environment is definitely here to stay for a little while. Right. We've got a couple of, we've got a couple of years to work through all this inventory. And I think, you know, part of what, what, what Jared is talking about is you, you have different buyers that are emerging. Right. You have the retail buyer who is coming in with a broker. They're buying a unit. Um, you have uh, the bulk buyer who's coming in and looking to buy chunks of units. A lot of buildings, it's hard for them to do that because they have to reach a certain price point with a lender. Also, if they sell too many units, that puts them into issues with conforming loans and, uh, and financing for future buyers. Um, you have restructuring of the, of the capital table, capital stack uh, of the project or the developer itself. And so in e each of these strategies, you have different people and companies emerging who are who are addressing it. You have bulk buyers who want to get in early. You got bulk buyers who want to get in the middle. You got bulk buyers who want to pick up the remnant, right, Jared? This is this is kind of how things are are shaping up. Johnny. Yeah. Go ahead, Jared. I was gonna, if I could just direct a question yeah. to Gov Governor Randolph. Uh, and that's, you know, you, you know, you talk about all these issues they have and, and you're exactly right. And, you know, a lot of it just comes down to price and walk us through doing the deals right now. Like what are the strategies you use? Because, you know, you earlier talking about don't focus on that price per square foot number, but get creative. And I'm just hoping you could give some strategies out there to, to the rest of us. You know, this has to be very strategic uh, in the way that people approach this when negotiating whether it's with the sales teams or the developers themselves, you need to focus on establishing a price point in the building that is going to protect the pricing integrity of the building and then back into what your ultimate basis is. So if you feel or the market is saying this product that was selling at $2,000 a square foot is now worth $1,500 a square foot today, the, you need to be at $1,700 a foot then back into that $200 a square foot spread. 
give me common charges and real estate taxes for five years, cover my city and state and mansion transfer tax and pay for my resident sponsors unit contribution. That's gonna fill that $200 gap. That's gonna start to move the needle with getting these deals done. And ultimately you as an end user do not want to pay $1,500 a square foot in a $2,000 a square foot building because the market's gonna come back. Somebody else is gonna look at it who's the opportunist like you are and go, this guy paid $1,500 a square foot. There's no way in hell I'm paying him market. And that's, that's how the cycle works. So be more intelligent. Don't let everybody see your cards. Keep some stuff close to chest. Get a better deal on the back end. Then you still realize a better profit and appreciation margin when you go to sell in the future, especially as an end user. So, Meanwhile, every buyer is like, yeah, of course I want that low watermark, watermark and I want everyone to see that I got that low, low watermark, right. well, but it doesn't work that, that way. way. That's the problem in this industry is there's so much ego yeah. and people are not honest. Take your ego out. Yeah. Uh, Sean, Sean, I, I want to get you in here. What do you, what do you yeah. think about this uh, doing deals and negotiation strategies? Well, I mean, the, the thing that was left out there is like, if you do buy at such a significant discount, then you've just set the building up for failure, especially in a new development that has 50 plus percent of their product left to sell because then the rest of the, the units aren't going to appraise. So if you're getting a straight line discount of 25, 30% off, and that's a recorded sale, that's the most recent recorded sale. That's what the, the lenders are going to, to use for their appraisal. It won't appraise and then units can't sell. So that's why these developers beyond their minimum release price are not taking deals on straight line discounts. So like the myth of, of an individual buyer coming in and saying, you know, the market's depressed. You have so much inventory. Give me 25, 30% off ask. It's just not happening. And so, so the, the points that Jared laid out are exactly the, the way to get it done. But I want to go back to um, what Kale was saying about, you know, the number of, of condo buildings that have a huge bulk of inventory left. Like, yes, there's a lot of press right now about market activity picking up and I am seeing it on the ground, but that's not enough market activity on individual unit by unit purchases to absorb this still crazy amount of inventory, particularly in Manhattan. So, so just, you know, a few people here and there entering the, the market more so than a few months ago is not going to do enough to absorb that inventory. Yeah. I mean, look, there's a lot. <laughs> I got a lot of agents calling me. This is not necessarily a new development phenomenon, but I got a lot of agents calling me now and being like, my buyer thinks they missed it. You know, and I kind of laugh at it sometimes. You know, this, this, these things take years to kind of really turn around and go. Sometimes you'll have a quick snapback and stuff like that. But in terms of new development, if you're considering putting a bid in for new development, you didn't miss anything. That's well, all. Yeah, I was going to say, what, what do they Absolutely feel, not. What do they feel like they've missed? You know, I think they buyers see the activities are, up and they're like, oh, I missed, I missed the bottom. The, the leverage, the le yeah, the leverage in the resale market right now is insane. The, the shift between where it was six months ago and where it was now. New development's doing its own little thing. It did not enjoy that kind of thing. Yeah. But they're also looking at the stock market. These things that did a V, they got killed, they did a V. Manhattan resale did the same thing. And it's just, they, they just think that they missed it. And it's like, no, the, the yeah, fear look, was removed kind of thing. Nothing is for, for context there, like the resale market, yes, there there have been a lot of bidding wars. I've had I've had friends and clients lose out on apartments paying all cash over the asking price and lose out in the resale market. But the thing that's not discussed in that is that these prices that they're bidding at are the discounts were already baked in. They're still lower than what these apartments would have been worth in 2015-16. 
So it's not that you're paying over market. You're paying, you know, you may be paying over the asking price, but that's still, that asking price is still depressed compared to what it would have been worth a few years ago. And again, that's just in the resale market. So I understand that the fear of people thinking they missed the bottom, but you know, the bottom is, is, is not, it, you haven't hit the bottom yet. Sean, that's a, that's a great point. And, you know, just to follow up with what Noah said, you know, one of the other questions we get a lot is we get requests from agents to talk about, you know, recent comps, because a lot of times they're having trouble with appraisers and appraisers are pulling things from a couple of years ago, or, you know, seven, eight months ago, pre-COVID and it's, it's one number and it's, you know, now the, 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 the unit's trading at a different number. And I'm curious in the new development world, are you seeing any issues with people getting mortgages or having appraisals come in low or anything like that? I mean, what I'm seeing from that standpoint is developers, again, the ones that are getting deals done, especially in these bigger buildings, they, they just can't come off of, uh, you know, a certain price. So, so again, they're offering, you know, uh, unless you don't ask for it, they're offering to cover your, your city and state transfer tax, your mansion tax to still get you to that price where you are willing to transact. But um, there's just certain numbers that they, they will not go below um, for now, at least. So because it would kill the appraisal value for, for future sales. General, and that's definitely more prominent in larger buildings where they still have so much inventory left to sell. And they're selling within a, a line in a building um, where it, it's pretty cut and dry to, to appraise or, or comp. Right, but let's also remember the, man, the mansion tax is, uh, is, is new. Yeah. only started in July 2019. So that's, you know, that's money that, that you know, Albany took right out of the, out of the pockets of the developers. Generally Kale, Kale, sorry, ahead. Jared, go ahead. Oh, please, go, John. No, just, I'm just curious if any, if any of the developers sort of, you know, read any of the Schedule A's to take that into effect, take that mansion tax into account. No, I don't believe so. No, the not, buyer does. Yeah. Right. And if you look at the charts, you'll see that July 1, 2019, uh, well, in June 2019, there was a huge run-up, especially at the higher price points, huge run-up. Yeah. And then July 2019, all the way through today, uh, activity at the higher price points has diminished in its direct correlation to the introduction of the, the mention tax. Wow. Now, you asked a question about what the lending market looks like in general, the lending market on the commercial side. Let's just talk. Let's talk about your big banks like your Wells Fargo, your Bank of America, your JP Morgan. You know, they're getting creamed on the commercial side um, in a lot of major cities. Multifamily is doing OK right now. Distribution center, logistics centers are doing OK right now. And then there's some other nuanced product like um, uh, storage unit facilities. They don't, they're not putting money into new buildings, but they are putting money to work with credible buyers. So the lending market hasn't dried up for those who are looking to purchase in these new development buildings because they have money that they need to put to work. And the best way to put that to work is with someone who is an end user, needs, has, needs a home to live in. So we haven't seen lending dry up for the, 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 the average retail purchaser. Right. That's a great point, Jared. And, and in fact, different lenders have started to focus on different types of products. Uh, lenders, some lenders that are making portfolio loans, which means that the loan stays on their balance sheet. They aren't selling it to the government, Fannie Mae. 
uh, there are lenders who are will lend be the first first guy in. Um, there are other lenders that won't be the first, but they'll be early. Um, when you get to some of the big banks uh, who are heavily regulated and follow the Fannie Mae guidelines, they're they're not going to get in until 35% of the building sold, maybe 50% of the building. They'll come in. They have to come in much later. All right. All right. Um, this is really, really, really interesting stuff here. We're getting towards the end here. I got a final question and then we're going to wrap this up. Um, I want to talk about the why. Okay, guys, why will New York City come back? Why is there value right now? Let's let's quantify this or at least talk about it. Um, and then we'll talk about the risks. Let's take both sides of the equation. Okay, and talk about it. So, um, Jared, why don't you start us off on the why will New York City come back and why is there value right now? Uh New York City is going to come back because your commercial operators, those who own retail, those who own multifamily buildings are starting to negotiate, come down on price and their expectation for the underwriting of their assets. When we look at and analyze the gentrification in a new neighborhood, there's two things that we look at. The retail landscape and you look at the new development of multifamily rental units. Okay, those are the two things that you look at. Because those drive traffic to, for, of new consumers into that market, that new, newly gentrified market, to become buyers and consumers over the long term. So you're seeing that retail owner uh, of, of retail space starting to lower rents, um, be more negotiable, as well as these new multifamily rental buildings are starting to bring down pricing or give more incentives to create a, a more lease up. So it's starting to drive traffic back into these neighborhoods. The reason that New York is going to come back is because retail is going to become affordable. If retail becomes affordable, there's new retail operators, there's new restaurants. New York life is on ground level. Now that we know they're under these commercial operators and owners are under such pressure to reduce pricing, the city's destined to come back because there's going to be more operators going into these spaces to drive more foot traffic in these neighborhoods. Sean. I mean, New York is, is, it's just where everything is happening at the end of the day. Um, the, the office sector has been talked about as getting crushed, people reducing their footprint. But at the end of the day, people still want to live in New York City and people are willing to, to live, you know, push further out into Brooklyn and Queens so that they can still, you know, have a home here. Um, and at the end of the day, I think people are, are chomping at the bit to get back into the office. Um, and, and most of the office life is still here in New York City. Uh, you know, I'm, I don't know about you all, but I'm, I would have liked to do this in person. I'm a little bit, I'm getting tired of the, the Zoom calls every day. And I think that people are going to be ready uh, the moment that everyone is able to get vaccinated and go back to the office. They're, they're going to be ready to just like get back into the hustle and bustle. It's been been really quiet in New York, and I don't think that that's going to last forever. Kale? Uh, I think I think these guys said most of it. The only thing I'll add is that uh, for New York to come back strong, we have a mayoral election coming up, yep. um, and we need good leadership. Um, yeah. There are a lot of big challenges that the city has and will have, um, and we don't get the right people and the right chairs, then could be a lot tougher. But overall, I think we, we'll, we're gonna come back strong like these guys are saying, but it could be much stronger with the right leadership. 
Yeah. And I mean, we're also not operating at full capacity, right? I mean, we got a lot of arms of uh, the tentacles of the buyers out there still not coming in yet. They're, they're going to come online over the next, I guess, uh, eight to 12 months. Um, and let's, let's just compare us for a minute to, to suburban housing markets, which kind of did some crazy stuff. Urban markets went the other way and are now re coming off those lows. In terms of value, how could you not see the value in urban um, considering what happened unless you just have a different long-term take and there's a lot of inflationary money being printed in this world. Let's just, and, you know, and, look at and most of it is still in front of us. Yeah. And that's going right. to lead to a crazy inflationary decade ahead. Yeah. What about risks? What kind of risk we got? Who wants to start there? Jared, come on. Uh, what type of risk? Give me, give me more content. What are the I'll risks? Go first. I can go okay, first. Kale. On that one. Go ahead, Kale. Uh, you know, the key risk is that, uh, you know, the kind of the, the, the balancing act that New York has always had uh, between, you know, business and, you know, the, the population, uh, if we skew too far uh, away from, from business towards, uh, towards the population, um, that, is, that could be a big risk. Uh, do you mean risk in terms of the city coming back and what would hold us back from progress? Yeah. Oh, oh, easy. It's, it's all, all policy, all politics, 100%. Okay. Um, so you're agreeing with council so, policy. Yeah. It's 100% policy. You know, we, we've got to be a pro pro business pro development city. Um, the owner operators who own these buildings who are worth a lot of money, guess what? They've been in the business. Remember I told you the statistics, the average commercial property owners own their property for 41 years. What was New York City 41 years ago? Right. Were hardworking people who were dealing with tenant issues, payroll, work, walking buildings, dealing with maintenance issues on a daily basis. They happened upon portfolios that are worth hundreds to billions of dollars. They were not worth that 40 years ago. You cannot penalize the people who kept New York alive in the 70s. I won't go into the names and the programs that were created, but there are families in New York that are being penalized by policy. And they were the ones that, the reason New York is where it is today. These are hardworking people. Everybody should be able to enjoy in the spoils of culture and love and the riches of New York City. And we can't let the policymakers take that away from us. It will, it will dampen any progress this city can make coming out of COVID. I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. Sean, any final, any final uh, thoughts on that? No, I think let's end on a high note. I think that was exactly right. <laughs> you know, here I think of something a little bit more positive. I used to always say that there are three essentials in life: water, food, and shelter. And I provide the shelter. Um, but there's one. There's one. One more that we're missing. I think we're realizing it's human contact. Yeah. And to Sean's point. I'm desperate to just be around people. And I'm sorry, I've spoken with a lot of friends who are in the city, not in the office, locked in their apartments, having mental breakdowns. And I, I'm not using that lightly. I'm not trying to be offensive by, um, by saying that, but they are. If you don't think office is gonna come back, if you don't think being in a full capacity restaurant is gonna come back, you're Looney Tunes. And, and I love and I love how you how you pin this whole recovery, basically saying on retail and office coming back right. is what's going to lead this whole thing 
And and I love that. So this, this yeah, has been yeah. fantastic. John, go ahead. I was going to say, you know, it's, it's great stuff. And I, and I think what's really exciting is it's not like we're just going to rewind the clock and it's going to be November 2019 and office is like it is. It, the the wave of the New York recovery is going to office and retail are going to have a completely different look. And there's going to be a complete repurposing of this street life. It's going to be a, a new and different New York, but it's going to bring people together. And it's I see this as, yes, it's a very confusing time, but the opportunities are, are actually immense if you're looking long term. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I think it's going to be an amazing decade. The only risk I can see besides the policies that you guys said, I completely agree. That's a macro longer term thing is the stock market. I think we might have a little kind of crazy little hiccup there, but who cares? That'll happen. We'll get past it. Looking ahead, I think it's going to be beautiful. Um, I think we're done here. Great stuff. Um, thank you, guys. Yeah. Thank Kale Goodman, much, Market Proof, Jared Randolph, Sean McGinley of Esther Partners. Thank you guys so much. That is John Walkup. I'm, I'm Noah Rosenblatt. This is Urban Diggs talking Manhattan. We'll catch you next time.